Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size episode of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Well, you can ask Joe to ask me anything, and he will do so at your command. Producer Joe, how are you? I am well, Mick, and we're in person. We rarely get to do this in person. Anymore. Rarely do. It's so much better this way. Well, you know, you don't have to uh, climb up the hill. You get to walk to your uh, your home office. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You mean Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters. That's right. Uh, I'm good. I mean, you know, still on strike. Still on strike. Well, still we'll be saying strike. that for a while. I think we are going to say that a while. Yeah. Uh, but it does feel like this week we've entered... A new phase of the strike. A new phase. The uh, Screen Actors Guild has voted to authorize a strike as well. However, the Directors Guild settled with the producers, uh, making some advancement, but um, certainly not uh, at that place we were hoping they would be in joining us. No, no. It was uh, underwhelming, I think, is the word I would choose. And I think a lot of... uh, your peers in the guild have used that word as well. Yeah, uh, well, I'm a member of all three of those guilds, and I was hoping that all three of us would be in total solidarity. Yeah, I, I, I think everyone was, <laughs> but I think everyone also kind of expected the DGA to make a deal. Yeah, I mean, they always have. It's a complicated membership because there's so many below-the-line folks, too, right. that they have to think and look out for. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what they're planning to direct in a few <laughs> weeks, but <laughs> we'll see. But they have a deal uh, that's yeah. being voted on, and, and will probably most likely be passed through. And by the time people hear this, some people hear this, it may be moot. But uh, uh, that's yeah. right. Uh, but SAG, ninety-eight uh, percent of uh, the members that voted voted uh, to, to give their to their authorize leadership. a strike. Yeah. yeah. So right now. Uh, Carol Lombardini is listening to Fran Drescher talk, (laughs) (laughs) which is an interesting thought. Uh, I can't imagine being locked in a negotiating room with her for several weeks. But, uh, (laughs) you know, you know what? Couldn't happen to a nicer lady. We'll Uh, drag them down. (laughs) Wear them down. So we'll see. You know, the the Writers Guild will continue to to, to pick it uh, around town, uh, just like we did last week at the horror writers wga pickets and and we were there uh, yeah we was, were there and uh it was our first was, field uh post yeah man on the street man on the yeah. street mick garris on the street yeah, and we had some very eloquent supporters of the strike and uh and it was really great that they gave us their time yeah it was it was a lot of fun it was it was uh it was fun to see lots of faces and and also get to meet some people i'd only met over zoom like like uh you know, like Josh Rubin, for example. Uh, Who just coincidentally asked sent a us a question. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. So maybe so, that's where we should start. Why don't we? Uh, so, yeah, friend of the podcast, Josh Rubin, writes, Mick, before we did our Man on the Streets chat on the horror picket at WB the other day, I nerded out with Lee Winnell about blocking actors on set. I would love to hear your approach to blocking. Do you present a framework to your actors and let them do their thing, or is it more prescriptive? 
How do you surmount an actor's stubborn unwillingness to try what you envisioned when both of you, quote unquote, know you're right? I've never really met up with a completely stubborn resistance from an actor. I try to make it organic so that everything we're doing within the course of a scene feels genuine and natural. But sometimes when you're in a location and you have to light a certain way or you want to get a certain lighting effect, you don't tell them that that's the reason why. Right. <laughs> because the camera is here and this complicated uh, technical issue is well, behind yeah, they the, have, the they reason. They have to look at it from <clears throat> their character's point of view. It's from a performance and storytelling mm-hmm. point of view. And it always is. And that's really important. And... Usually they're very understanding, but when you're dealing with more than one performer, then these days you rarely get a chance to rehearse before you're on the set itself. Mm -hmm. And if you do, it's in another room. It's across a table. It's not on your set because the time is valuable. The set's being built or dressed or painted or whatever. So you, you go in with a game plan. And at least in my case, I always try to be flexible, knowing what I want, knowing how it can be altered without altering the impact of the scene and how it plays. But most actors, when they're working together in particular, they they feel the reality of it. And they're not averse to, if you explain why you're going for a certain staging, they're going to understand that, and especially if they're theater trained then they're used to being dictated by the dictates of the of the stage itself. Right. But because of the technical elements in filmmaking, it has to feel organic, but you are also, before rehearsing with the actors, well, first you rehearse with the actors on the stage before you finalize your lighting. Right. But you've already sketched it in, and you've done your art direction and everything. So, but... Everything changes once you're on a set that's finished. And you just have to be able to roll with it. And you want input from an actor that improves the scene. Sure. You just have to be the one who makes that decision of this works for us or against us. Right, because ultimately they have to feel comfortable with what they're doing so that they can give an organic performance. They have to not think about it. Right, exactly. They have to be perform. They have to not just, they're not performing. They have to be in the moment. They have to be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that's great advice. And it was, uh, it was Anthony Perkins, I believe, who wanted to make sure you weren't just after cool shots, right? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So <laughs> he could be a little recalcitrant here and there, but um, it was only in the interest of it being the best movie it could be. And to, you know, we, we've talked about it a few times. He was testing me. I was a young director. Right. Off of uh, Critters 2. Off of Critters 2. (laughs) And he'd worked with all of the greatest directors from Hitchcock to Orson Welles to William Wyler and on. Sure. And so he had every right to want to feel confidence that his director knew that he was telling a a very human performance-oriented story and not something cool emulating Alfred Hitchcock in his shot style. Yep, yep. No, it's, that's, that's, it's a very common thing. I remember when I was just starting out on, on the development part of my career, uh, I was an associate producer on a project that Michael Ironside was in, mm-hmm. and we had a, a young commercial director, and he did the same thing. He definitely was testing him. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, that was the first time I had, like, 
encountered that on set before and and it was very eye-opening and i think i imagine that that experience with tony was probably something you took moving forward into interacting with other actors if you don't well. learn from an experience like that then <laughs> then quit yeah. <laughs> you know because it's a constantly evolving set of rules when you're working within the arts in any way no matter what pop culture or or fine art mm-hmm. you grow you evolve and so does the audience and so do the media yeah yep no i think uh well hopefully josh that answers uh <laughs> your question about <clears throat> mick garris's perspective into blocking and josh knows a thing or two about blocking actors I mean, and stage i think scenes. The, the, the blocking in both of his movies is exceptional so yep. uh He's only going to get better, which yes. is which is. Uh, and for those who don't awesome. know, he's the writer director of Werewolves Within. If we didn't mention that, uh, an excellent movie that you should see if you haven't. Uh, all right, Antonio writes, you directed an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. I did. How was your experience? <clears throat> did you enjoy that episode? And are you a Freddy fan? I really enjoyed the episode. Um, the experience was great. Uh, I was hired right after doing The Stand to do this episode. Um, Gil Adler was the producer, and he and I had developed a project together that never never happened, uh, and we were very friendly. We both were working on projects for a late producer named Lawrence Vanger, which is how we met one another. And the budgets were very, very small. It was shot on 16-millimeter film. Uh, I had not worked with Robert Englund before, and I got to do the wraparound scenes from three episodes of the show. So it was great fun. Uh, Toby did the first episode, Toby Hooper did, and I had introduced him to Gil and helped put them together to make that happen. I did the second episode, and although it aired third, Tommy McLaughlin, who I also introduced to Gil Adler, did the third episode, which ended up running second feels almost like a proto masters of horror in a uh, way it was i also <laughs> introduced him to to uh bill malone yeah who did freddy's nightmares and go. then later tales from the crypt and and uh uh house on haunted hill with gill yeah and and by the way gill has been on postmortem before so yes encourage you guys to go back and, and check that podcast out yep uh, but uh, uh, also, just a, an aside on the Freddy thing, uh, Robert England's new documentary just came out, and someone we know is in it. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't sing the praises of Robert England if asked to do so on camera? Yes. But yes, I had a great time. Part of it was because Robert was so terrific and so much fun to work with, uh, and it was shot very quickly, very cheaply. I had a lot of fun. Is it the thing I'm most proud of having on my resume? Probably not. Um, But it was also a director for hire gig that I had not had before. Sure. And, um, you know, it was coming in, doing someone else's show, not having any choice about anything about the script or anything. Right. It was, are you available in these dates? And you don't see the script until shortly before you shoot it. Right, right. Um, so I had a really great time, and it was great to be asked. And, uh, you know, it was quick and dirty. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, and you got some, to be... with some wonderful actors, too. So. Yeah, and, and, and now you get to be part of uh, the legacy of one of the most iconic horror villains of all time. And, of course, uh, I am a Freddy Krueger fan. 
Yes, I would. I would certainly hope so. If you were uh, appearing in the Robert England documentary, <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> so Man of Horror writes. When it comes to the CGI versus practical effects conversation, how do you feel about even the smallest and simplest effects now being CGI? Do you worry that someday we could see nothing but CG effects in film and television? Well, these days, there is nothing but CG effects in films and television mm-hmm. in a lot of the, especially the bigger budget ones. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's able to be done on any budget these days. Look, for me... There isn't an either or. It's what's best and most real and most organic for the scene. Whatever is the most real, you can have practical effects that look fake, that if you touch them up with a little bit of CGI, mm-hmm. they look flawless. Yeah. You can have great CGI that just looks like a video game. Right. Just it doesn't have heft. It doesn't move the same way a real body would. It, right. The flesh doesn't fold when when you bo- bend an arm, the way that it would in real life. Right. Um, so, you can work together with both, or work with them either. Whatever is the most realistic, and the most able to fool an audience into not paying attention to it, that's the best way. Mm-hmm. So, in a lot of cases. That's practical effects. In a lot of cases, that's CG. CG, it's harder to be real than with practical effects. But how many times have you seen, you know, a a forehead appliance that has a line around it? You can tell where it extends from the face. Absolutely. Well, if you'd painted that out mm-hmm. with CG, you might have perfected it. Right. So, right. you know, the best tool for the best uh, time and, and place. Yeah. I do worry about uh, the fact that there is has been more and more and more of a reliance on CG over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, that some of the executives, when they see a practical effect, they panic because they don't realize that it can be augmented and made better. Uh, and so they immediate, immediately go to CG uh, to quickly repair. Well, them. that's the filmmaker's job to yeah. to plead that case and to let them know sure. through knowledge and through example yeah. how yeah. you can make that marriage work. Absolutely, but uh, but I do think that that's probably one of the reasons we're seeing a heavier reliance on CG now more and more. Well, if it is because of the executive suite, then there's something really out of balance there. And I know executives are involving themselves more in creative decisions than ever before. Yes. And it is obviously to the detriment of the material that's produced. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I think they they really like about CG is they can keep changing it. Yeah. Uh, they can't keep changing practical effects. They're kind of locked in to some degree. Well, like the third version of the thing, they tried to do it all practical effects, and then they painted over everything with CGI. Right. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So so disappointing. Uh, yeah. No. We're we're we're. I think post mortem we can safely say we are still big fans of practical effects. Absolutely, and we're big fans of CG. Yes. Used in the right. Yeah, capacities. The best artists in any format are the ones who do the best work and for the best, uh, the best moments. I agree. All right, King Brandis writes. I recently discovered the short-lived series She Wolf of London. <laughs> Would love to know where the concept of the show came from and why it moved from London to Los Angeles during the last few episodes. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to know that too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It originally came out of a relationship with uh, Universal Television that had a special wing. It was called MTE, uh, MCA Television Entertainment. And it was producing programming for cable TV rather than broadcast network or syndication. Well, cable or syndication. And it was the brainchild of a guy named Ned Nall, who was an executive. I worked with him. We did Psycho 4, the beginning, for MTE. And uh, because it was done for Showtime, it was off network. Yeah. So it was premium television. So Ned had the idea of rebooting Leave It to Beaver, which they did, the new Leave It to Beaver show. He also had the idea of reaching into the universal roster of titles. One of them was uh, It Came From Outer Space, which Mm. my friend Tommy McLaughlin turned into They Came From Outer Space. And there was She Wolf of London, which they said, we don't want a remake of the movie because we don't want those rights issues, even though we own the the movie and the title. Mm. But we would like a new take on that. So I brought Tommy McLaughlin in with me before the They Came From Outer Space thing happened. And we developed that together. And it was originally shot in the UK. Um, After uh, I was asked to be an executive producer, the executive producer on the show, the, at the time my career was making me busy in features and television. And this was done on a very limited budget. I loved the pilot, but I did not want to be married and tied down by a, a syndicated series. Right. The series was created for a brand new network that only had two channels, one in L.A., one in New York. This was right before the Fox network. Oh. And it was going to be um, a, a new universal TV network hmm. that was going to be what Fox became. And so their trademark shows were these two shows. Well, it never went beyond two stations, WOR and Channel 13, KCOP here in L.A. So it never happened the way they anticipated. They wanted to create the network around these two centerpiece shows. So it was taken over by other writer-producers. I was an executive producer. I would give notes that were ignored. Um, the show really changed and it became real fanboy stuff, which appeals to a lot of fans, but they did an episode in a horror convention and the, you know, it, right. it became very self-reflexive in, in that regard. Um, uh, we had a great cast and, and, you know, the, the Britishness of it was so wonderful, but then it became love and curses. They brought it to LA. Mm-hmm. It was much cheaper to do it that way. Sure. And the show itself looked and felt cheaper. It played cheaper and it became something that uh, I was really sorry, um, took the direction that it took. Uh, I, I still think the pilot was really good and there are some good episodes, but it did not fulfill the promise of of the potential of of what we could have done. So it was economic reasons that brought it to Los Angeles. It was economic reasons that brought it to Los Angeles and creative reasons that I think were ill chosen. <laughs> well, there you have it. Uh, on a more positive note, Treble Rules writes, 
Can you talk a little bit about the house explosion scene in The Stand? I always thought the slow motion sequence was incredible, and it looked like the stunt people did an amazing job. It was really remarkable, and, you know, the the scope of that film was so much larger than anything I had done before. And this was something I'd never done before. You put an extension. It was a real home location. But you build an outer wall, and between the real house wall and the fake house wall are your explosive cannons and the fire guns and the windows that break. It was such a big deal, and it took us all day to set the gag. Wow. The governor of Utah, where we were shooting, was invited to come. Oh, no. And so he was there waiting and waiting uh -huh. and waiting, uh -huh. and it was hours before. It, it, we didn't do it until 3 in the morning, which was way after the curfew we were supposed to because we were in a neighborhood. Wow. And by that time, he'd gone away. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> he gave up. But... It was spectacular, and the stunt people were great. And I'm always terrified before big stunts. You have to trust both the special effects technicians and the stunt artists themselves to work in concert with one another, to know what's safe, and to be sure of what's safe. So I was waiting all day long. It's unbelievably tedious to set it up, but it's also what you need to do to make everything safe. Right, right. And... When it happened, of course, I saw it in real time, and it was just magnificent and just so much bigger than I anticipated <laughs> it being. And then when I saw the dailies the next day and watched it in slow motion with all the slow motion angles, and of course, we shot it with a half a dozen cameras. I was, I was just going to say, how many yeah. cameras did you shoot? Yeah, I, I think probably six cameras. Did you run everything uh, at, at, at speed? No. Uh, we had a variety of speeds. Got it. You know, because sometimes the impact of an explosion is best at 24 frames, is, you know, yeah. real time. But somebody flying through a window, through the air, uh, in front of fireballs in slow motion, it's yeah. it's grandiose, it's exciting, and it's shocking. Yeah. Um, and I could not be happier with how everybody did their job. It's uh, it's pretty cool when uh, you get to, I mean, when you're when you're sitting there and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, are you like, oh my god, where's my day going? Like, where where, where what do you think? I know you know for safety purposes, like it has to be done that way. But is there still that creeping, nagging thought of like, oh my gosh, this is taking way longer than I thought? Yeah, but <laughs> we we also planned it for the end of the shoot day. Got it. So I'd gotten. The rest of the day. Okay, understood. Yeah. But it yeah. did put us into overtime, but it right. was unavoidable overtime that the producers understood. Yeah, and, yeah, and went for my but, my my first encounter with something to that effect was when we did the free fall in Nightmare Cinema and Ryu Hayes segment. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. I remember I kept walking up to one of the uh, production assistants, and and he just kept saying, "Yep." It's up next. It's up next. And it was <laughs> another hour would go by. It's up next. <laughs> yeah, it takes so much more planning than you ever expect. No, absolutely. But, absolutely. but it, it's worth it. And that's why you really need a great um, uh, a great schedule. Some people who know what they're doing when, yeah. when they work it out. A first AD who understands the requirements of safety and, and artwork. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Chris writes, Nick, when you set out to direct The Shining, 
How were you able to clear your mind from Stanley Kubrick's adaptation? Seems like that flick would loom large in your approach. It loomed large, but remember this at the time, and I will say what I always say to qualify this, I think it's not a great adaptation of the King book. Mm -hmm. It's a great Kubrick film, but it took me a while to go around to that because I loved the book so much. And King's feeling about the Kubrick film made it a lot easier too, because I loved the book and I read the book first and the Kubrick film was not a satisfying retelling of the King book. But if you haven't read the book and you see the Kubrick film first, you're going to love that movie. And it's a great Kubrick film. But uh, in 1996, when we shot The Shining uh, Reboot, um, I was still in that mode where we're doing the book. And the author of the book has written this screenplay. Mm -hmm. So other than the here's Johnny moment, which is so (laughs) iconic for everybody, we never thought about the Kubrick film, we did our best to exclude it from our minds. Mm -hmm. And it was not that difficult to do because it wasn't a movie I'd watched a half a dozen times because I didn't love it until I had gone through the Shining experience and could see it for what it is rather than what I had hoped it would be. That's really interesting. I, you know, because I know you had told me having read the book first and then seeing Kubrick's movie, you were cool on that initial adaptation, but you, you did grow to like it with time. Right. Uh, I could appreciate it on its own terms. As a Kubrick movie. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now that makes sense. That makes total sense. Uh, and I would encourage uh, Chris to go dig deep into our archives uh, <laughs> and find our shining 25th anniversary uh, discussion because Mick and I go into a lot of detail about right. how that miniseries was made. And we also have a wonderful show with Mike Flanagan talking about Shining. That's right. That's a, that's a, that's a great one, too. Uh, so, all right. A little more modern uh, and, a, and a little controversial, but Uh-oh. Christine wants to know, why do you think people were so hostile to the new Halloween trilogy, especially the final installment? People always, fans in particular within the horror genre, are always resentful of favorite franchises changing course. Yes. Um, the great thing about the the final trilogy was Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Being a part of that. That's a great thing. But mm-hmm. whenever you don't meet expectations, much like The Shining we were just talking about. That's why I thought these paired well. Yeah, uh. you, you, you have a reaction to that. You know, the, the Halloween franchise has gone through so many permutations with and without Jamie, with and without John's involvement, uh, John Carpenter's involvement, all of those things. You know, I don't follow the franchise as closely as a lot of other genre fans do. Like like me. Yeah, <laughs> like you. I mean, how many are of them? Oh, my God. I think there's 13? 13 yeah, Halloween I movies. So. I think so. I couldn't tell you which ones I think, were ironically, which. they got the 13 before Friday the 13th got the 13th. <laughs> That's which is... funny. Which is, well, there's Don't a little more story. Don't quote me on that without, uh, without yeah. Wikipedia nearby. But, uh, yeah. but uh, I'm sure someone on Twitter will tell me I'm wrong. But um, yeah, any... Any franchise that goes that long, I, I lose track of. Yeah. And and it doesn't take up as much space in my heart mm-hmm. because, you know, I won't say it wears out its welcome because obviously they're successful. Right. But the fans in particular are very persnickety when it comes to their favorite 
film franchises. Well, and I don't think that Universal's marketing did Halloween Ends any favors. I think that's honestly where the all, the marketing for months was it's the final smackdown between Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers, right? Yeah. Like, and that was that was it. That was the marketing. That's what and that's everyone, not at all what the movie was. And that's was. not what the movie was. And that's what people wanted it to be. I know. And they introduce a character as the central villain yes. that had nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. I and, really, I actually, I, I, yeah. I think it's an unsatisfying choice to wrap up your 13 episode. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, I think that's why, I think that's, honestly, I think if they had been a little bit more honest about it being the next generation of Michael Myers. Yeah. You know, like, and, and, but you but, can't do that if it's going to be the last final film. And that's why I really, truly think they probably should have done that story second. Uh, this is my, this is just me fan, if fan, they did fan spitballing here. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think, I think if you had done the first movie where you introduced, reintroduced Michael and, and Laurie Strode, and then you do the second movie where Michael's gone into hiding and this other character brings him back. And then you do the third movie where it's the whole town versus Michael. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe. I, maybe. I, I still think that it might not have been the the right approach. Yeah. Um, because it has to be a surprise. Right. And it can be an, a very unsatisfying surprise. Sure. I, I just think that that to me lays out a little bit more nicely as a yeah. flow for a trilogy. But that's, you know, that's me just uh, armchair quarterbacking. Yes, it's a exactly. lot easier to do that after the fact uh, than it is to try and conceive something, especially in the way that they did and with, with some of the delays that they had with COVID. You know, yeah. I think they, yeah. they, they made a lot of changes and twists and turns. And um, I will go on the record, though, hot take. I think that Halloween ends will come to be appreciated with time. Uh, well, here's hoping. Here's hoping. Uh, so to bring uh, things to a close, uh, you mentioned something to me off mic last week while we were on the WB Horror Picket. Uh, and Tucker uh, on Facebook has been wanting to hear more stories from your PR days. So, Mick, I want to talk about a movie that I – Heard you mention that I never knew you worked on as in the publicity department, and that is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Well, the distance at which I worked on Blade Runner was <laughs> such that I never was on the set. I never met Ridley Scott, but um, I had done some publicity on Alien, uh, and it was under Charlie Lippincott who created the marketing and publicity campaign for the original Star Wars and who I worked with on Star Wars. Um, And then later with him on Alien. He created his own company called Creative Movie Marketing, and that's his first client after Star Wars was Alien. And so he was handling Blade Runner for Warner Brothers, and I was asked to do some work on that. So at that time it meant going to some key science fiction conventions with slideshows using literal 35 millimeter <laughs> slides uh, in a carousel projector and uh, just showing visuals and the like. So uh, I do have a an original Blade Runner crew t-shirt Ooh, from that era that's and cool. you've seen me in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's still in, in great condition. But... Um, I, I wish I could say, yeah, me and Harrison, we were pals, and I interviewed <laughs> everybody and all of that. But no, it was really after the film. 
had been shot. Right. And it was just putting together press materials and taking visuals around to conventions. What did you think when you saw some of the visuals that were, were being sent your way? I mean, oh, it was stunning. Yeah. It was stunning. It's, it's a groundbreaking film. And most people don't realize when ground has been broken until after the fact. Mm-hmm. And once you started getting all the Blade Runner ripoffs is when you realize <laughs> he has completely recreated the visual design of science fiction. Right. As he did with Alien. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one last little thing to touch on, though, that's of note about Blade Runner and you working on it is it came out the same day as another movie that you worked on and did publicity on, uh, The Thing. So what do you do? You're Mick Garris. You've worked on both of these movies. Which one do you go see first in the movie theater? Well, <laughs> I see them before they come out in the movie theater. <laughs> Fair. So, all right. So, and, and of course, you pull for all of them. But I was much closer to the thing. Right. You know, I was working on the lot at Universal. I was shooting the making of documentary. I was on location yeah. in British Columbia. You were much more connected. Yeah, I was connected. I'd worked with John before yep. and knew him. Yeah. So it was very personal and yeah. very much a, a different thing. I, I was... Everything I did on Blade Runner was from a remove. Yeah. And everything yeah. I did on The Thing was personal and passionate. It's, it's, it just shocks me that literally two movies that really changed science fiction forever, uh, both uh, came out the same day. Like it's, and it's... both of them were unsuccessful in their release. <laughs> and yet have grown on to be some of the most well-regarded movies of all time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. And Mick Garris was there. Yet again. I was there. <laughs> All right. right. Well, uh, that's enough of uh, us being here. That's uh, right. Mick, face to face once again. That's right. Yeah. Uh, thank you uh, for, for doing this yet again. And answering... Thank you, Producer Joe. Thank you for our audience. And yes. please let them know how to pose their questions. Well, they can send questions uh, to our email address askmickanything at gmail.com uh, you can also find us on the social medias mixed at Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM uh, and you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively and we really appreciate it if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts it all really five helps. stars there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> however you think about us we'd love to hear from you thank you Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.